The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, we're beginning a study tonight of the book of Exodus. I don't know how long it's going to take. I notice that there are 40 chapters here, and uh, with my usual preaching style, it just won't work um, to go through so carefully verse by verse. So we'll have to figure that out. But tonight, basically, I just want to give you an overview of the entire book somewhat. And uh, if there's time, begin looking at, at chapter 1 and 2. But if not, we'll save that for the next time. Um, you've gotten, I hope, an outline of the book. I got this from a commentary. I didn't do it, and I should have given bibliographical uh, evidence of that. I may be accused of plagiarism because of that. I didn't intend it. Um, but th this is just one of many outlines you can get from the book. One of the things you get from looking at it, though, is to see the scope of all that God does in these 40 chapters. Incredible, isn't it? The immensity of the display of God's power. Some would say the greatest display of God's power, apart from creation, that you're going to find in the Old Testament. Uh, and the, the things that Elijah did that we've covered are really very small compared to the awesome deeds of deliverance that God worked uh, in the time of Moses and the Exodus. And so it's an exciting study we're beginning tonight. I want to uh, set it in its context, realize that after 50-some-odd chapters in the book of Genesis, uh, we're coming right into Exodus with a continuation of the faithfulness of God. There's a direct connection between Genesis and Exodus. Um, one thing that you may not get in the English translation is that the first word of uh, the book is the word and. Well, what does that tell you? It means uh, look back to find out where we're at and just continue. You don't usually begin a book with the word and. Uh, and so uh, basically this is a direct connection from what God has already been doing in uh, Genesis. And what is that? Well, he has already called out a person, Abraham, made specific promises to him, and now he's going to begin fulfilling those promises. He's going to display his glory in an, in an amazing way, in an awesome way, uh, which we are still worshiping God for today. Now, the word exodus uh, literally means a going out, a going out. And uh, it's not the Hebrew title of the book, um, but it is the Septuagint or the Greek title, and we've taken it over from the Latin and into the English. It means a going out, and that God took uh, Israel out of bondage in Egypt and brought them, uh, began to bring them into the promised land. And so uh, that's where we get our title. Now, overall, there are three major themes in this book. And then I'm going to look at some that I don't want to call minor themes, but more detailed themes. First of all, we're going to see deliverance from bondage. Turn, if you will, and you're going to have to move around with me uh, tonight uh, in these 40 chapters, but to uh, chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. It says there, during that long period, that long period being the time in which Moses was in Midian, uh, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on, Israel, on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And so here they are in Egypt. They're groaning under bondage. 
what has happened is that Egypt or Israel went into Egypt specifically as a result of a famine. You remember the story with Joseph and with Jacob and how Joseph's brother sold him as a slave into, into Egypt and God used that to deliver and to protect his people from uh, famine and eventually God specifically told Jacob to go down to Egypt that God would provide for him there and at a certain time you would bring him out. But what's interesting here in these verses uh, in verse 23 through 25 is that God is concerned to remember his covenant with Abraham. Now, in order to understand that, you have to go back to Genesis 15. So do that if you would for a minute. There are many places I could point to the covenant because he reiterates it, says it again and again. Uh, Genesis 12, he begins it. In Genesis 15, he uh, says it, I think, very clearly. And then in, uh, to Isaac and Jacob, he states it again. But in Genesis 15, we get a clear articulation of the covenant that uh, Moses has in mind at the end of chapter 2. It says there in 15.1, After this the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. One of the great verses of the Bible, by the way. God is our reward. Is the God of the 25 attributes enough for you? Is he enough to look at him face to face forever and ever? Is that sufficient? I would say most definitely. The Lord is our shield and our very great reward. And so he says that to Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the stars, look up at the heavens and count the stars if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Is this familiar, by the way? I would hope so. We've been over this chapter so many times. He makes him a promise. So shall your offspring be. What does that mean? So many. You'll have so many offspring, so many descendants. And then comes the key moment for, Abra for Abraham, for Abram at this point, his name hasn't changed yet. Abraham believed God, or Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, moment of salvation, verse 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. So here are the two aspects of the promise. Number one, that he would have more descendants than he could count. They were as numerous as the stars of the, of the sky. And secondly, that they would possess a land to be their very own, their very, their very own home, their dwelling place. And so those are the two aspects. And then he says uh, in verse 8, Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I'll punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land from the river of Egypt 
to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenazites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So that is the covenant that he made, the promise. And it's a very sober and somber moment because he is making a covenant in, in blood, an animal sacrifice covenant, and the pieces are laid aside and there's a, a path in between and the fire pot comes down representing the presence of the Lord and a serious and somber commitment. Back in, in the ancient Near East when, when kings would make these, these kind of covenants, they would put these pieces aside and in effect saying, this is what should be done to me if I break this covenant. A kind of, may I be exploded to some degree. So, so to some degree we could say that God himself would cease to exist as the God we know if he doesn't keep this promise to Abram. And he will most certainly keep it. So this is the context to the backdrop of the book of Exodus. Because you can see in chapter 1 what happens is the Israelites start to multiply greatly. And no matter what happens to them, bondage or, or genocide, it doesn't seem to matter. They just multiply greatly in the land. And so that's the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abram. So shall your offspring be. They estimate between two and three million Israelites came out in the Exodus. That's incredible. Over 600,000 men plus women and children. A huge number of people. Do you think Abram was going to go out in that starry night and count up to two or three million? Can you count all that? So shall your offspring be. God was faithful to his promise. Secondly, he wanted to give them the land. Well, they start out in bondage in Egypt. They, they must come out. They must come out of Egypt in order to get that promised land. Now, I'm going to stop here and just tell you of just the framework or the approach out of which I'm coming to the book of Exodus. You know, this has been uh, fought over territory. This is turf that is, is like battlefields. The Pentateuch in particular, uh, Exodus. Uh, I believe that Moses wrote the book of Exodus. I reject the documentary hypothesis that says that this is just a bunch of minor, smaller documents from an oral history that was written hundreds or even a thousand years later than we think it was written and stitched together by some later uh, editor or redactor and all that. I reject the whole thing. I don't see any compelling reason to believe that Moses did not write this. After all, Jesus himself said he did. And this is the way it comes to us. Again and again in the Exodus account, we see Moses sitting down to write all that God had done. It tells us that. And so I accept this as written by Moses, with the exception of the account of his death. I'm speaking of the Pentateuch. Uh, I assume that someone else wrote that. Fair assumption, Moses was busy doing other things at that particular moment. But other than that, I accept this as written by Moses. Concerning the date of the Exodus, it says in, in 1 Kings chapter 6 that there was 480 years from the time that, that uh, Solomon dedicated the temple back to the time they entered um, the Promised Land. And then you can figure from that, with the 40 years wandering, the date of the Exodus, sometime in the 15th century B.C., 1446, 1447, somewhere in there. That is a conservative dating. By that I mean uh, conservative scholars hold to that. Others will hold to a much later date of the Exodus. The approach I take, therefore, is I'm just taking the Bible the way it's written. It's always safer that way anyway, isn't it? And so it presents us as a book of Moses. It presents us as perfect scripture. Final thing I want to say is, just because something is a perfect, I mean absolutely perfect metaphor of something else in the Bible doesn't mean it didn't happen historically. Is this book not a perfect metaphor of our salvation in Christ? Did he not rescue us out of bondage and slavery and bring us into the promised land? Is it not a perfect metaphor of our salvation? Does that mean it didn't happen? No way. Because our God is sovereign over history and he's able to orchestrate perfect metaphors right into the flow of history because he is the king of history. 
Just because Noah's Ark is a perfect metaphor of our salvation from judgment doesn't mean it didn't happen. And just because Jonah is a perfect metaphor of Israel's failed relationship to their mission in the world doesn't mean it didn't really happen. It did. Our God is sovereign over history. Okay, well, that's just table-clearing things. And, you know, that marginalizes us as fundamentalists, but that's okay. We're going to read the Scripture simply as it is written. And so the first major theme we're going to see is deliverance from bondage. And so at the end of chapter 2, we see this. Look over at uh, Exodus 14, verse 13 and 14. The word deliverance shows up there in a mighty way. Exodus 14, 13 and 14, at this particular moment, uh, the people are crying out with terror and fear because God has led them into a cul-de-sac with their backs up against a sea. Do you remember the, the movie Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille and all that? Remember what uh, Yul Brenner, uh, who's uh, the pharaoh, says, uh, their God seems to be a very poor general. He's led them into a bad place because their back was right up against the sea. Is God a poor general? Oh, not at all. He actually likes to give himself great disadvantages in order that he might work great deliverances. And so he brings his people right up to the edge of a sea and then delivers them. Look at what they say. They, they say in verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. This is the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at that particular moment. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, this is typical now, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us here to the desert to die? Now these people were experts concerning the graves in Egypt. They built them, many of them, the, the pyramids and all that. Said, is it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt you brought us out here? A little cynical there, a little sarcastic. That you brought us to the desert to die. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring, uh, will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Isn't that something? The deliverance of God. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And you could add, and shut up. <laughs> just stand still and don't say anything more. And just watch what God is going to do. So deliverance from bondage is number one, number one of the four major themes I want to give. Number two, the covenant at Sinai. Turn to chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. This is the covenant that God made with his people, a binding covenant that, that bound him together to be their God and they would be his people. And it says, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now I'm not going to read the whole Ten Commandments, but this was the beginning of the binding covenant that God made. And on the basis of this covenant, on the basis of this binding covenant, he would give them the promised land. And if they failed to keep the covenant, if they did not keep his commands, then curses would come down on them. And so this is a major theme uh, in the book of Exodus. It's going to be repeated in the book of Deuteronomy. Thirdly, we see the transition into the promised land. The uh, promise to Abraham was not just that they would multiply uh, physically, but that they would enter the promised land. Well, they can't do that uh, in bondage in Egypt, and so they must be brought out of Egypt, and they must travel into the promised land. Now, we, do, and we know that they do not make that journey in the book of Exodus, but they begin that journey. Look at chapter 3, verse 7 through 10.
This is in the account of the burning bush. And God said to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And so you see, he has the promised land in his mind. I need to bring them out in order that I might bring them in. Take them out of the land of slavery in order that they might go in and possess the land that I promised to give them. Turn over to chapter 6, verse 2 through 8. We're going to see the same thing. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. And moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession I am the Lord. So you see, he's intending to fulfill his covenant obligations, his responsibilities to Abraham. He promised him, he says, with an up, uplifted hand that he would give him this land, and now he's going to fulfill. And so that's the third major theme. And the fourth is God's permanent dwelling with his people. You get a sense of it already in some of the verses that I've read. I will be their God and they will be my people. But that is God's ultimate goal, not just in the book of Exodus, but in all of human history. In all of history, his goal is that God would dwell with his people and be with him, be with them, and they would be his people and he would be their God. And these very words are repeated in the book of Revelation when finally, at last, the whole plan of salvation is completed. In Revelation 21, God himself will be with them and be their God and they will see his face and he will never depart. They will be there forever and ever. Well, we get uh, a sense of that with the uh, creation of the tabernacle. Now, the first meeting uh, is at Mount Sinai. That's where God uh, would, worship, would be worshipped by them, and that was the place that uh, they would first uh, receive the covenant. But the mountain couldn't travel with them. You know, mountains don't travel very well, despite whatever myth you may have heard uh, concerning Muhammad. You can't have this kind of moving mountain thing, so instead we're going to have a moving tabernacle and the tabernacle would travel with them wherever they would go turn to 25 exodus 25 verse 8 and 9 and so we have this tent this tabernacle which represented god's um, dwelling with his people in exodus 25 verse 8 and 9 it says then have them make a sanctuary for me and i will dwell among them make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern uh, that I will show you. So he says, make this tabernacle and I will dwell with them. Do you see that? 
in verse 8. So the tabernacle is going to represent God dwelling with his people. Now I have a confession to make. I have numerous times in my Christian life, 20 years now, sought to read through the Bible. And I have always gotten shipwrecked in the description of the tabernacle. That's where, it's not Leviticus. I don't even make it to Leviticus. It's the end of Exodus, after all the exciting stuff is over, and after the Ten Commandments and all that, that we get into the, the, the twisted linen and the, the, the rings of gold and the posts and the stands and all of that, that I lose interest. Well, not anymore. Let me tell you something. There is so much truth woven into the fabric of that tabernacle. And I'm looking forward to sharing that uh, with you. I've recently uh, been to a life-size replica of the tabernacle of God, and it's an amazing thing to see. But the, the significance of the tabernacle is that God intended to dwell with his people. He wanted to dwell with them. But it's also significant in that there's a sense that this tabernacle could never really do it. There's no way that that earthly tabernacle would truly be the dwelling place of God with man. And so it says in Hebrews 8.5, they, the uh, Levitical priests, serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build a tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. In other words, the tabernacle was made according to a pattern, but the reality is in heaven. And so there's a sense in which this tabernacle represents the shadow nature of the old covenant. It pointed ahead to a reality, but it was not complete. And yet, for all of that, the tabernacle was a place where God supernaturally was willing to meet with his people. Look at the end of the entire book, Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 through 38. After the tabernacle had been set up exactly as God had commanded, all of the fabric was done, all of the works were made. Uh, after all of the obedience... In verse 34 and following, it says, then the, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, and in the sight of all the house of Israel during their travels. And so here's a sense, a visible representation of God's tabernacling or dwelling with his people by means of this humble and simple tent. It was representative that God would at some point deal perfectly or dwell perfectly with his people. Now, having given you those major themes, I'm going to go quickly through some more uh, detailed themes. I'm not going to call them minor. But number one, I want to show you how God is absolutely committed or devoted to his word. God is devoted to his word. And what is the significance of that? Well, when he makes you a promise, he keeps it. Do you realize the patience of God in dealing with this covenant he made with Abraham? Over 400 years, those people languished in slavery. 400 years. That means that Moses' father, remember how he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You remember that? Who is God speaking to? He's speaking to Moses. Who is he speaking about? Amram. Who's Amram? Moses' father. Well, what was Amram's life like? Bitter bondage and slavery his whole life. I'm the God of your father. Well, what did it do for Amram? 
Well, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet he ordained that his people suffer and languish in bitter bondage and slavery for four centuries and more, and yet he was still the God of Israel. Does that teach you something about God? That he works out big plans and programs and how it affects the, the specific individual is not as significant as how he works out the overall plan. And so he was the God of Amram, and yet he ordained that Amram be in bitter bondage every day of his life. And yet I am the God of Amram. And so God is faithful to his word because he remembered his people. He remembered Amram and all those others and all the bondage that they went through, all those centuries. And he was going to act on their behalf in a way he doesn't act for any other people in history. He moves out in a powerful way. God is devoted to his word. Secondly, God desires worship. What was the reason that God brought Israel out of Egypt immediately? Remember what, God, what, what Moses kept saying to Pharaoh? Let my people go so that they may worship me on the mountain. Again and again, it's let my people go so that they can come and worship me. God said this in chapter 3, verse 12. God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt out, people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And so that was his purpose, in order that Israel might worship him. But it's not ultimately Israel that he has in mind alone. It's the whole world, isn't it? He wants the whole world to worship him. And so he's putting himself on display here in the book of Exodus so that we might all worship him properly. Thirdly, God distinguishes between people. Look at chapter 8, verse 23. In the midst of the plagues, you begin to see, and we already covered this with, with Elijah, just how accurate God is when he's hurling his judgment down on the earth, right? You remember on uh, uh, the mountain where, where Elijah took on the prophets of Baal and the, the fire from heaven fell down right on the sacrifice and didn't miss? Aren't you glad it didn't miss? Well, so it is also with these plagues. And so it says in 8.23, speaking of, of one of the plagues, plague of flies, it says, I will make a distinction, speaking of Pharaoh, I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. What does it mean he'll make a distinction? He's going to divide boundary lines around them and deal with them differently than he deals with the Egyptians. He's going to deal with them according to his sovereign will. Look at chapter 9, verse 4. The Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. And so he makes a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Look at chapter 10, verse 23. When the plague of darkness comes on Egypt, it says, No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Very accurate distinction. Darkness over all of Egypt, but the Israelites, they have light. And then in chapter 11, verse 7. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God deals with people according to his own distinctions. He's sovereign over nations, and he can do what he chooses with the nations. And so he makes a distinction carefully. And ultimately, look at chapter 19, verse 5 and 6. God makes a distinction between Israel and all the nations on the face of the earth. Chapter 19, verse 5 and 6. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Isn't that spectacular? 
Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. You will be my treasured possession out of all the nations on the earth. This is a shadow, I think, or a precursor of how he deals ultimately with the church. Why just a shadow? Because it was conditional. Do you see the conditions? If you fully obey my covenant and keep all my commandments, then you will be my treasured possession. Did they keep the covenant? Absolutely not. And so God makes a new covenant which would be guaranteed to the people uh, uh, about whom it, it, it spoke. And the new covenant was not dependent on our obedience, but on Christ's obedience. Isn't that wonderful? And yet we see God making a distinction in that he chooses Israel to be his treasured possession. And uh, next, God delivers through blood. Look at 12:13. In the plague of the Passover, the final and most dreadful, most terrible plague, the plague of the, on the firstborn, the tenth plague, God commanded Israel that they should sacrifice a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, and they should uh, paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and on the, on the top of the door. And in 12.13, it says, This blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Do you see that? When I see the blood. And so this is the precursor, the clear teaching in the book of Hebrews, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. There must be the shedding of blood in order for sin to be forgiven. But above all of these themes comes one central theme, and that is that God does all things for the display of his glory. He does all things for the display of his glory. God seems to set himself consistently at disadvantages in order that he might display his glory. I mean, look at the ironies, for example. You get little baby Moses in chapter 2. He's under a death sentence because he's an Israelite boy baby. He's floating in a little bassinet covered with pitch. And this little suckling, this little baby, is going to be the human instrument for the overthrow of Egypt. It's kind of like baby versus Pharaoh. And who wins? God wins through the baby as he grows up to be Moses. And look at Moses himself. You know, a stuttering spokesman for God? What is that? I'm not sure that he was stuttering, but he said, I'm slow of speech. I have a hard time speaking. And if it wasn't stuttering, at least it was this much. He said, I'm not much of a public speaker. Choose somebody else. And yet God chooses him and uses him in a mighty way. Or how about this? The enslaved Israelites coming out and plundering the Egyptians. Give us some of your gold and silver and all your best stuff. Okay, here, take them. Incredible. Basically, I think it was just the worker is worth his keep. And that had been four centuries of labor. And I think they deserved it, right? And so they plundered the Egyptians. So many things, and we see God displaying his glory. But all of this is so that we might see his sovereign power and his control. And why? Because we don't know God. We don't know him. Do you remember when Moses first came to Pharaoh and said, let my people go? What did, what did, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, right? Let my people go. What did Pharaoh say? Who's Lord? I've never heard of him. We've got lots of gods here. Who is the Lord? You're going to get an education. You're going to find out who the Lord is. Because he's going to take each one of your petty little demonic gods and he's going to judge each and every one of them. We'll talk about this when we go through the plagues. He's going to take them on and he's going to beat them one at a time and he's going to beat you. So you will know who I am when I'm done. John Piper wrote a chapter entitled, Why Didn't God Make Short Work of Pharaoh? Could God have made short work of Pharaoh? Oh, yes. He's gone. 
because in him we live and move and have our being. At any time, Pharaoh ceases to exist if God chooses. Instead, he drags it out, plague after plague after plague. And why? To display his glory. In order that he might judge Egypt's gods and display his glory and his splendor. Ultimately, he displays his glory in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Look at chapter 9, verse 13 through 16. And in the revelation of Moses in those two ways. Exodus 9, 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go, so they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. You see his motive, his reason, so that you may know me. You may know that there is no one like me. Keep reading. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. Verse 16. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you see God's motive there? He wants his name proclaimed. He wants his glory revealed. And so it isn't going to be one plague or two. It's going to be ten. The full course of his plagues as he has ordained. And in order to accomplish that, don't you think human enlightened self-interest would have kicked in around plague two or three and Pharaoh would have let him go? Oh, absolutely. And yet God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order that he might accomplish the whole course of plagues. And so he hardens his heart. And so we see the glory of God in sovereignly hardening Pharaoh's heart. And then finally, we see the glory of God in Exodus 33. Not just hardening Pharaoh's heart on the one hand, but revealing his glory personally to Moses on the other. Look at Exodus 33, verse 12 and following. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. So basically Moses is saying, you've got to go with us. Be very close to us. Dwell in our midst and be our God or else we're no different than anybody else. And God says, I, I will grant it to you. That's the very thing I want to do. But Moses isn't satisfied, is he? He goes further. Now show me your glory, he says. Wow. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. So we have God hardening Pharaoh's heart on the one side and in Exodus 9 and we have him revealing his glory on the other in Exodus 33 and why simply because he wills to do so he chose to do so he said I have mercy on whom I want to have mercy not because Moses deserved it not at all it was a matter of mercy and so we've seen the themes the overall themes of the book of Exodus I can't wait to get into the details God willing we'll begin next week with Exodus 1 and 2 but I can't finish without mentioning the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because this book prefigures Christ in a spectacular way. 
In Luke chapter 9, verse 30, turn there if you would, we'll close there. Luke chapter 9, verse 30, the Lucan account of the Mount of Transfiguration. It says, And behold, two men were talking with Christ, and they were Moses and Elijah. So there's a certain kind of reason that we went from Elijah now to a study of Moses, although we're studying Exodus, not Moses per se. But Moses and Elijah appeared with Christ, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure. Do you see that word, departure? Which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I'm reading the New American Standard, but that word departure in the Greek is exodus. So they're speaking of Jesus' exodus that he was about to accomplish. What is that? What is Jesus' exodus? Well, it is his death for our sin at the time of Passover, by the way. It was his death for sin and his blood shed for us and the salvation from sin that he effected for his people, bringing them out of bondage to slavery and on into the promised land. That was the exodus of Jesus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is for us the new and living way into the very presence of God. The old covenant did not show the way in. It showed the way out of Egypt, exodus, but not the way in to the very presence of God. The way out, yes, but not the way in. Hebrews 9, 8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as that first tabernacle was still standing. And then in Hebrews 10, 19 and following, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, listen to enter the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Exodus just began the journey. The journey is complete in Jesus Christ. Through personal faith in Christ, we come into the very presence of God. And so it was as Jesus is nailed to the cross and his blood is flowing out. The beginning of John's gospel, John the Baptist pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. At the end, the soldiers came around with the mallet and did not break his legs. And why? Because the scripture said, none of his bones will be broken. That is clearly referring to the Passover lamb. John means for us to think of Christ as the Passover lamb. And because of that prophecy set up in the book of Exodus, we know who Jesus is. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.